Welcome to the World According to Boyer, where we bring top investors, best-selling authors, and business leaders to show you the smartest ways to uncover value in the stock market. I'm your host, Jonathan Boyer. Today's guest is Neil Vogel, CEO of Dot Dash Meredith, one of the largest publishers in the United States that owns some of the most widely recognized brands, including People, Better Home and Garden, Travel and Leisure, and Investopedia. Dot Dash recently acquired the publishing assets of Meredith, and the combined company reaches over 175 million consumers monthly and over 95% of American women. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And I'd like to point out, I am not a best-selling author, and I am not one of the world's great investors either. But thank you for having me. It's fun to be here. You are a business leader. <laughs> thank you. I'll take that. I'll take what I can get. I, of course, want to discuss the recent Meredith deal and what it means for the company. But I first want to talk about the turnaround you did at what is now called Dot Dash. And Dot Dash used to be about .com, which your parent company, IAC, bought from the New York Times. Full disclosure, Boyer Asset Management owned shares of IAC. For those of you old enough to remember it, about.com was a very popular site in the early days of the internet that you would go in order to find out about pretty much anything, and you were tasked with running it after the acquisition. And after about two years or so, even though it was still making a fair amount of money, you concluded that you essentially had to break up the site in order to grow it. What you did was you took the giant site, about.com, dismantled it, and turned it into a bunch of standalone websites that focused on narrow verticals like health or personal finance. To me, this seemed like a really difficult business decision. You had a business that was working okay, but yet you decided to make a really expensive bet to transform the site, knowing full well that you initially would lose lots of money. What gave you the confidence to do this? Can you take us through the analysis and decision-making behind it? The short story and the long story are kind of the same story. I mean, the thing that gave us the confidence to do this was that we were wrong for two years. And understanding and learning from being wrong and learning from trying things gave us the confidence to sort of like pivot the model. I'll give you a little backstory here. I joined About.com not that long after IAC bought it, probably six or eight months. I knew Joey Levin, who's now the CEO of IAC. He brought me in to run About.com. And at the time, About.com was definitely challenged. And Joey has spoken broadly about why they bought it and what they did with it, but we got there and we saw this publisher and we saw this about.com name that everybody knew. We're like, oh, this is going to be fun. This is like this fallen giant of the history of the internet and we're just going to clean it up and it's going to be great and we're going to be able to fix it. That is exactly what did not happen. And we got there and I'd never really been a publisher before. I brought in a bunch of people that hadn't been publishers before and we tried a bunch of things. We tried to make the content better. We tried to make the sites faster. We tried to do all these things. But the fundamental problem that we learned that didn't work anymore is that about.com, if you remember, was very credible information on all kinds of topics, very, very broad. The internet had changed. So where about.com had information on symptoms, diabetes, and how to beer better fry a chicken, people that have diabetes did not want their diabetes information from the fried chicken guys. And the fried chicken people didn't want to be on the diabetes site. So we would lose and we would lose visitors to in health, like WebMD and Healthline and in food to you name it, like Bon Appetit and Food and Wine and some of the brands, all recipes, some of the brands we own now. So after two years of trying and flailing, our story became a very IC story. And we basically, I think we missed like eight of nine quarters when we first got there. And this is all internal, obviously. And it was us going back to Joey and Barry Diller and saying, that didn't work, but we're going to try this. And that didn't work, but we're going to try this. And eventually we went back and said, listen, everything we've done seems like 
we've failed, but we haven't. We've actually, each one of these is a data point. And we've assembled these data points of frankly, like what not to do. And in many ways, that's more valuable than what to do. When you get something that's what to do, you just keep doing it. When it's what not to do, you have to think and you have to pivot. And what we realized was there is no place for a general interest site on the internet anymore. And secondarily, we realized that even the publishers in these verticals were doing kind of crappy things. There's too many ads. Sites were too slow and junky. People forgot they're in the business of delivering content and aid to people. And like the content was getting crappy. So we're like, okay, we went back and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take about.com. We have 2 million pieces of content. We're going to throw a million and a half of them in the trash, which was obviously a big deal. We're going to take the remaining half million in health and in finance and in food and in home and in travel. We're going to arrange them into verticals and we're going to launch new brands out of about.com. And when we're done, there will be no more about.com. The reason why we think this is going to work is because all of our content is, we're not news, we're not sports. It's very intent-driven. We help people do something with their time, cook something, make something, diagnose something. So we can make fast sites that are really valuable and make brands that resonate, take them out. We think we can actually, in all of our arrogance, we think we can actually compete with WebMD. And we think we can actually compete with Bon Appetit. We can compete with all these guys. And then we went and we went back to IC and we went back to Joey and to Barry. And I'll never forget this meeting. We're like, listen, we're still making money, but a lot less than we used to. We want to take this brand that we thought was all of the value of the company. We want to throw it in the trash. We want to compete against the best players in publishing on the internet with this like new model that we just came up with. And oh, by the way, you got to let us lose some money to do it. The answer, which is a very IAC answer, and I know you've spoken with Joey before, and you know, it was, what took you guys so long? It took you two years. You could have come with us a year ago. And That was the exact spirit of answer that we were looking for. From that moment, from that meeting, which was like November or December of 15, we started to execute our plan. And from the first launch of VeryWell, which was our health site, was the first site we launched. We'd launch it. There was a dip for two or three months until people started to figure it out and Agrim started to figure it out. And then it just started to go. And then the minute that happened, we knew we had something and it was just a race to launch the spruce in home and food and the balance in personal finance and trip savvy and travel and LifeWire and tech. And they just all started to work and we're like five for five. And then in a very IAC move, and I'll continue the story past the answer to the question, we went and said, look, we know what we're doing here. We've got this like pattern recognition. Let's find some other things. We're doing this with brands we've made up. Let's buy some real brands. So we went out and we started to do some small acquisitions. We bought Birdie, which is a very well-known indie fashion brand. We bought something called My Domain in the home space. Then we bought Brides from Condé Nast. And then we bought Serious Eats and Simply Recipes and Tree Hugger. And all of a sudden, we're like 12 for 12. Like every brand that we've launched or bought, we've grown. We've grown in revenue. We've grown in audience. We've really improved them. We've got this formula. It's going. And you can see in our financial results, which are public, how quickly we were growing. We did not look like a publisher. We looked a lot like an internet company, although we are a publisher, to be very clear. And then to finish the story with the acquisition you opened with, we got to this summer. And for those of you who followed Meredith in the past, Meredith was half TV stations and half publishing assets. They sold the TV stations to another group called Gray Television. And the publishing assets were there. And we had a very similar conversation with BD and Joey about Meredith that we had at the time we broke up about.com, which is, guys, let's take a look at this thing. It's obviously heavy in print, but if you look very closely, this is a digital business masquerading as a print business. We brought in some of the smartest consultants in print. We think we know what to do with that going forward to make it a really nice complementary asset. But what we want 
is better homes and gardens and food and wine and travel and leisure and people. And if we can run our playbook on these brands that have been historically played second fiddle to print properties, and it's a really weird thing to say in 2022 that that's what happened, but that's really what happened. Like, let's get in there and let us do it. And more importantly, this whole like idea of pattern recognition that we can go back to is if you map every one of the brands we acquired from Meredith, you can draw a straight line to one of our brands and what it looks like and what we had to do. So although it looks like we took a very big bite, we bought something much bigger than us, we broke it into its component pieces and we like know what to do with it, know how to digest it. Now we're three months in. I think today's just about 90 days. We're deep in the integration mode, but we're really excited. We're the biggest publisher in the world. We're these guys that were like these non-publishing guys that were very much outsiders trying to figure out what to do with about.com. And now we're the biggest publisher in the world. It's been a crazy ride. No, it has. And I applaud Joey and Barry Diller for giving you the chance. I mean, I guess to take the devil's advocate, success is the worst teacher. What are you doing to ensure that you're taking this situation individually? And obviously you have a great playbook of what you do and how to improve properties, but this is a huge acquisition. Is there anything you're doing differently? Yeah. I mean, the first thing is we are totally paranoid as operators. And this playbook that we used to like launch very well four years ago looks virtually nothing like we do today. And what we do is we have some guiding principles that we know work. And what we know works, specifically on the internet, but you can define this more broadly to other media assets, is best content for everything we do. And again, our content is called evergreen, help people content. Every single piece of content we make, we endeavor to make the very best thing on the internet for that. And if you do that, okay, that's something people will like. The second thing we want to do is our sites will be the best performing sites on the internet. And they are in terms of speed that really drives performance. And then the third thing is the advertising and monetization we use will always be respectful. And when we launched, it continues today. We'll be two-thirds the number of ads on a typical competitor, maybe less, because you don't need more ads to make more money. That's a false choice. You just need better ads that you can charge more for, better ways to monetize you can charge more for. And if we focus in each of these brands with our number one job is making users incredibly happy and the money will follow, build audiences. Our audiences are generally down the funnel because you're trying to figure out what color to paint your kid's bedroom. We know a lot about you. Like, your router's too slow. We know a lot about you. You're trying to cook paella. We know a lot about you. Like once you're down the funnel, if we get people the very, very best experience, that's how we build brand. That's how we build loyalty and it works. Now the formula for People Magazine looks very different than the formula for Better Homes and Gardens and the formula for health.com. But those three principles are the overarching principles that underpin or overarching and underpin. That might not be the right. I might've mixed things up there. <laughs> it's a bad metaphor, but like they're the things that support everything we do. What's really interesting, and you had mentioned print, and I used to go to any doctor's office, et cetera, and you'd see a Better Homes and Gardens or whatever, Meredith Magazine, I'm assuming that's no longer the case. But what you're doing now is super interesting is you're making it more of a premium product, better paper, that sort of thing. Can you take us behind that decision? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think historically, we've pretty much telegraphed what we were going to do and pretty much stuck to that. And it's again, it's the same thing if you look at what like Hearst and other people have done. Historically, magazines functioned a lot like the internet and how they made money. So if you're Better Homes and Gardens, you printed a lot of magazines, you had a very large subscriber base to try and sell ads against a very large subscriber base. I think what happened over time is the demand for advertising in print has gone down. 
However, people whose willingness to subscribe to Better Homes and Gardens is still very robust. But there was a delta in the circulation between the people willing to pay and what they needed to serve advertisers. So the trick is to unwind that delta. We don't necessarily want to give deeply discounted magazines to people or places if there's no ads to support them. And we want the people who love these brands to pay for them. Now, it turns out the people who love these brands want a more premium product. And in many cases, they're even willing to pay more than they've been paying. So just like people like reading books in print, just like people like vinyl records, people love magazines. I have the media consumption habits of like a 17-year-old, which is probably in line with my chosen occupation. But we get magazines at home. We get, well, obviously we now got all the Merth magazines, but before that, like we got food and wine because we liked it. And it's nice to, I'm a big sports fan. I'd watch a Sixers game and flip food and wine because I don't want my phone around. So there's a real demand for this. And I think what we've seen is that magazine properties that have a premium element, look, it's not a mystery that people don't want parenting advice from a magazine anymore. That's hard. We change that. But food and wine, Southern living, people, the cadre that we kept and we're actually investing in, they have real audiences that really love them. And it's an experience. And as long as we give them a great experience, it's not going to be our biggest business at all. It's probably not even going to be a growing business, but it can be a very profitable, complimentary business. We're in the brand business, right? If we're building amazing brands, Southern Living's magazine is amazing and it's incredible for that brand and people love it. Now, is the circulation going to double from here? Absolutely not. But can it be a really viable, profitable piece of the mix? 100%. One of the things that you've said before the acquisition of Meredith is you didn't have the scale to get a big chunk of advertising dollars. And to me, it seems strange. You had almost 100 million visitors to your site. What can you do now that you couldn't do before? I know you have about 175, probably it's grown a little bit since you last gave that stat. But like, what can you do now that you couldn't do before? Yeah, this is my favorite question. So when we were Dutch Ash, not only did we say we didn't have scale, but there's one thing we said we didn't have. We didn't have the brands. And we had great brands. We loved our brands, but our biggest brands were four and five years old. Like the Spruce is the single biggest home brand on the internet. It's five years old. Everyone knows Better Homes and Gardens. No one knows the Spruce. The Spruce is bigger than Better Homes and Gardens. So we had a branding issue. And we had a scale issue because we do something unique that others can't do. And we like our chances. One of the things that we do is we don't need cookies or personal identifiers to target because of the nature of our content. If you're on our site because your router is too slow, we know exactly what kind of ad to serve you. We know exactly what kind of commerce opportunities to give you. You need to either fix your router or get a new one. It's very simple. Same thing with the painting your kid's bedroom example. If you're trying to paint a bedroom for a newborn, we know that obviously you just had a kid. We know that you're in the market for home improvement. We know that that very highly correlates with a new car, a new house, and a new credit card. So we can target really, really well. What the Meredith scale allows us to do is for the first time, a premium publisher can target contextually as well, if not better than someone can target audience. And you can't outbuy us because we have so much scale to do that. The second thing was, it now gives us these incredible brands to talk to advertisers. Like Better Homes and Gardens is 100 years old this summer and People's 50 years old. Like these brands are special and beloved as leaders to talk to advertisers with. This is what we like the most. So it's like, okay, is your content safe and good? Yes. The 175 million users you referenced, every single one of them experiences only content we've created, edited, completely ours. 
There's no feed. There's no fake news. There's no politics. There's none of that stuff that you don't want your ad next to. There's no weird videos that are saying like none of that. We control all that experience. So check that's premium. Can we deliver scale to someone? Check. Can we deliver audience to someone? Check. Do we have some of the best brands in the world? Check. So all of a sudden, we're a viable alternative. And again, this isn't part of the model we need to succeed, but I think it's going to happen. We're a viable alternative to Facebook. We're a viable alternative to some of these other places that, frankly, it's an interesting position for us in that we're talking to all these big agencies and having lunch with the head of this agency and that, that agency. They're all rooting for us. Like everybody wants this. Everybody wants a premium publisher that has the internet bones, that understands how to target. And in a world where this intent-based targeting is better than this like audience cookie-based targeting anyway. So we tell everyone like, look, we're better than Facebook because we're trusted. We can compete with Google. And again, obviously not on total scale and we can't take all the money, but we take a little of it. There we go for the question. We're the answer. We're closer to the customer than Google is. We just think we have a really interesting opportunity if we get this right and we put it all together correctly. Let me explore that. That's really interesting, especially what you mentioned about Google and Facebook, large consumer product companies, which are you know big advertisers of yours, spent tens, hundreds, in some cases, billions of dollars a year on advertising in the, like the case of, like I guess, a Procter & Gamble or something. And there are really few places outside of Google and Facebook where you can efficiently and effectively spend that kind of money. Well, there's a new one now. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying is Dot Dash Meredith now a viable number three? I mean, listen, I hope so. That is our long-term goal. We would like to be in the same consideration set. And I think we can be with our performance and our brands and our scale and our safety and knowing that you're going to be contextually around things that are look and reflect favorably upon your brands. If we can do that, we got a puncher's chance to take a couple of nickels out of these guys, which I think that we can do. Now, the number one thing we have to do is, and to be clear, we're not competing for the direct dollars. That's not what we do. But all of the branded dollars that go to these places that are performance-based and brand-driven-based, I think we got a puncher's chance to fight for. We, just, we need a seat at the table. I think we're going to get it. I think one of the things that maybe investors probably don't get and maybe you can explain is like, what does a conversation look like when you're going to a consumer product company and you're saying, I want you to advertise on Dot Dash Meredith? Like, it's not like a small business going on Google, whatever the Google services. No, 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 no. We're generally talking to like near agency heads and CMOs and things like that. Yeah. So what are you offering them? I'll work backwards. One of the really interesting things about our business is our ads and programs have historically performed incredibly well. Because we started from a place where we didn't have brands and all we had was scale and performance, we had to go into these places and say, give us a chance, give us a shot. You're going to learn our brands, but I promise you our stuff's going to perform better. And because our sites are fast and because we have fewer ads, they like invariably performed better than other publishers. So that was really positive for us. And it's manifested itself in a way where you'll hear Joey on earnings calls say things like, Every quarter, 23 of the top 25 dot dash advertisers will repeat. That's just not a thing that happens to publishers. Meredith, not even close to that. It's because of how well we perform. Now, it also depends on what the metric somebody wants is. Is it an auto guy that wants test drives or are you selling charcoal that wants to sell charcoal around July 4th? And what we have historically been able to do is through contextual targeting and through scale, 
and through sites that are so performant and ads that are so well-placed, we've been able to show real ROI better than other advertisers, including the platforms, for the vast majority of the people who advertise with us, whether it's pharma clients or finance clients or food clients. And that initial performance got us in the door, got our brands more familiar. Now that we're adding these brands and these scales, what we're going to do to Meredith is we're taking all the Meredith brands and we're putting them on our ad stack, like technical term for making, putting them on our sites that are going to make them as fast and as performant as ours. So all of a sudden we have all this scale that's going to be top of market or better than the market performance, 175, 180 million people a month. And these brands, we can talk to virtually any CMO in their language. What do you want? Like, do you want test drives? Do you want brand awareness? Do you want to sell more of your new soup? Like, what is the KPI you're trying to hit? Tell that KPI, we will make a program to hit it for you. And I think because we came from a point where we had to hustle for every client and perform and perform and perform. When you add that into what Meredith has with these incredible brands and this incredible scale, if we can keep our hustle and we can keep our brains and we can keep our performance, we love the combination. And frankly, that's what we're hearing. It's early days. We've done a few deals with advertisers that are one plus one is more than two. And frankly, we're hearing back from advertisers, the few that we've gone out with together, exactly what we'd hope in some flavor of this, like, wow, we'd love to give you more money, but we never could before because you couldn't get more. Or like, oh, this really performs your top of plan. So here's the mid-quarter re-up. Oh, we can now buy programmatically across this whole thing. This is great. I can find more of my audience here at a good price. So again, we really like our chances that we can do this. One of the challenges, Meredith, they have this quality content and it's obviously fantastic. These magazines wouldn't have lasted a hundred years if they hadn't but a lot of them kind of look like a PDF of the magazine. And like, what are you doing to make that so they're going to be a digital first company? This may be more detailed than you want, but it's interesting to talk about. One of the things that we were very different from Meredith is how we ran each of our brands. Each of our brands has its own general manager, which is basically mini CEO, has dedicated technology, dedicated content, dedicated design, dedicated product, which is like how you build the website, like kind of dedicated sales. Meredith was very matrixed where every one of our sites looks incredibly different. It's built on the same platform, like the Lego base is the same, but they can use whatever Legos they want to build it. At Meredith, which is a decision they made, every single website is exactly the same and none of them had individual leadership. So health magazine, health.com, looks exactly like people.com. That's not a thing in 2022. That's not a thing one can do anymore. So if you look at our sites, like if you look at very well in the Spruce, you have no idea they were part of the same company because it doesn't matter because the teams are free to do what is right for their brands and then share knowledge across teams. We are bringing that across all of the Meredith brands. And we already actually, we're three months in, we already have every leader for every brand in place. What we're doing is the first thing we're doing is we're taking all their old sites moving them onto our ad stack and tech stack. Then we are taking all the technology people and moving them into brands and all the design people and all the product people and all the leadership and saying, have at it, figure it out. Better homes and gardens should absolutely be the best home site on the internet. We've got all the tools, we've got all the resources. Now we have the structure, go do it. Take better homes and gardens, for instance. The Spruce is probably, depending on the day, 50 to 100% bigger than better homes and gardens in terms of audience. 
However, if you look at Google searches, eight times more people search for the phrase better homes and gardens than search for the spruce. That's our opportunity. And if we can do the right job with better homes and gardens, given its brand history, given the print magazine, given anything, we think it will achieve what you're calling it, its rightful place in the universe in hopefully a relatively short period of time. The thing that got us most excited about Meredith was when we really dug in and we saw this and we saw this structure because this is like the opportunity. The industrial logic there was always like, well, well, we're so big over here that like each of our things has to look the same. If you take people out, we were bigger than Meredith at Dot Dash. So you don't have to do it that way. And as a matter of fact, it's much more engaging and inspiring for a team to be like, all right, I am a health expert. I'm going to make the best health site on the internet. I'm competing with Healthline and Everyday Health and WebMD, and we're going to beat them and we're going to build amazing things that are just for us. And if you can do that, you can really succeed. And I think we've proven we can be successful, frankly, with some brands we've made up and then some brands we've acquired. But now if we can do it with the best brands in the world, we're a little bit like, all right, look out. Like We say this all the time, we are going to happen to things. We do not want things to happen to us. And the first thing we're going to happen to is the priority cadence and structure at which we run websites. Like they're going to the front of the bus and they weren't necessarily there and they are now. One of the things that we're really excited about that doesn't necessarily get as much investor intention, it gets some, is Meredith was super strong in licensing. I mean, really have done a great job. And Meredith is a company we've followed since the 90s. And Meredith had this, still does, this great, partnership with Better Homes and Gardens and Walmart since I think 1998 or so. It's grown. How big of an opportunity is licensing, in your opinion? Very. And it's something that we have spent a lot of time on since we got here. One, they have this incredible relationship with Walmart, who's been an incredible partner at Better Homes and Gardens. At Dot Dash, we always looked at Meredith. When we made Dot Dash originally, when we like had to take a part of Dot.com, we had a conference room in our office where we took Meredith and we dissected every single property and every single thing that they were doing. It's kind of like this thing of like folklore here now, because we actually do own Meredith now. One of the things we looked at then was this licensing business. And we always said to ourselves, like, licensing is the true testament if you have a brand that people care about. And they have brands that people care about, and they have an incredible licensing business. I think it needs some sunlight and water, which we're going to give it. We had the beginnings of some really nice licensing around the spruce and around very well. And we had a seven-figure licensing business here before we did this, which is like a mini fraction of what they're doing and what they can do. One of the things we haven't talked about is we're learning a ton from them. And one of them is like, how do you leverage brands in other ways? If we're not going to be a print company, what are we doing? And we have these in Food and Wine and Southern Living and BHG and The Spruce and Very Well and Investopedia. All of them have a real chance to have other revenue streams that look a lot like licensing, right? Stuff that we're going to put our name on, but we're only going to do it with things that we really believe in. Like the Walmart collection is incredible for Better Homes and Gardens. Honestly, we've got to get the Better Homes and Gardens. Like We have to focus on that as much as possible because it's just it's so on brand and it's so good that that's the blueprint for everything else we're trying to do. But it's funny, most people don't ask us about this. If we get it right, it's going to be a nice part of the plan going forward. I mean, it's just unbelievable high margin revenue that you can get. And why not do it? High margin revenue. And look, the only, it's funny, like high margin revenue doesn't live on its own. It doesn't just like fall out of the sky. You get high margin revenue because 
you're doing amazing things because you have a magazine that is the best shelter magazine in the world. And you have a website that is the best home and shelter website in the world. If we can get to there, things like licensing, if run appropriately, they'll take care of themselves. Like our number one objective is get these brands thriving again, like get them absolutely thriving. And if we can do that, things like this blueprint that we have for Walmart Better Homes and Gardens, we're going to be able to replicate in a lot of places. Just shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that you've historically been really strong on is performance marketing. That's a big part of your business. A lot of people have no idea what that really is. Can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, performance marketing is, that's the term we use in our financial reporting. It's essentially e-commerce. It's essentially us helping customers connect them with goods and services. So if you're on the Spruce and you need a new blender for your small kitchen, helping you find the best blender and buy it. If you just had kids and you want a new credit card that gets you the best frequent flyer mile deal, we can help you find the best credit card. If you need an online therapist because there's something going on in your life, we can help you pick the best online therapist. If you need a new couch, if you need a refrigerator, if you need anything, you need to learn how to make smoky eyes for the date you're going on tonight. Like we are very, very deep in the, I call it the guides, ratings, reviews, commerce business, where if you trust our brands, you know, you're a young woman on Birdie and you love Birdie, you love Birdie's content. And they all make fun of me for using this example all the time. So I'm going to use it again so they can listen and make fun of me. People like the woman wants to do smoky eyes for her big date or for her big night out. To the extent that we're the people that can tell her what products she needs to do that and tell her how to do that, that is totally in line with the mission of the brand. And it's a great way for us to monetize. Because our audience is so down the funnel when they come to us normally, like how to do smoky eyes, or again, same examples, like my router's too slow, how do I need a router? It presents a real opportunity to connect people with services in very well mind and mental health. And we've been pretty good at that. I think we were fairly early on that because I think we recognized the power of sort of the intent-driven audience. During the pandemic, that business went absolutely bonkers. That is a very big part of our business going forward. I think it's more than a third of our revenue now connecting people. And for us, we love it because it's totally editorial independent. No one that ever writes anything or reviews anything for us has any idea of any economic arrangement we have where we send somebody. We don't care. We often recommend things that don't pay us. It doesn't matter. We're not like other publishers. We don't order things in the way people pay us. We order things in the way we recommend them. With this acquisition, I think we probably have 75 to 100,000 square feet now of dedicated product testing space where we have 40 test kitchens in Birmingham, Alabama, and probably another 15 or 20 in Des Moines, Iowa, where we're testing not only all these products, but like virtually every recipe that goes on our websites and all this stuff. And like we do the same thing for all the home sites and all the tech sites. We can really take this seriously. We would think we have a chance to be the very modern consumer reports. The business is very similar to what like Wirecutter does in the New York Times. There's a lot of competitors in this space yet, but like everything else we do. There's like no shortcuts to winning in the commerce business. You do the hard work, you do all the work, you write the most comprehensive reviews and people will trust you. And one of the interesting things we learned from Meredith, there's a type of commerce they're excellent at that we never really participated in, which is more of the deals type commerce, which is on People Magazine, you know, buy this dress that Jennifer Aniston wore last night or this reasonable facsimile at this other place. They are very, very good and very, very seasoned at that type of commerce, which is our stuff really aligns with the intent of our users. What they're really good at is manufacturing intent at places where maybe there isn't 
shopping intent, but like you love Jennifer Aniston, she looked great and I want to own that dress and we sell them that dress. That's a surprisingly big business for them and something we're going to roll out across our sites. And we're learning a lot from them on this. And look, a big opportunity for our type of commerce is they don't really do it this way on most of their brands. Like there's not that much commerce at food and wine or at any of these other places. And it's a way we can monetize without ads. And it's something that our customers actually want from us. They want our recommendations. They want to know what our editors like. They want to know what colors we like the best. It's really interesting. So IAC, you know, they're famous for it and their playbook has historically been to spin out businesses once they're able to operate on their own. They've done it many, many times. Most recently, Vimeo. I realize this is a board decision. I totally get it. But there are any like metric the companies have set or something to figure out like now would be a good time where it's appropriate? I mean, to be clear, it's not up to me. I think they've said in the past, when you get so big or there's a compelling other reason to send you out of the nest, you get sent out of the nest. But the reason you'd need to be public or independent is, do we need capital? And I think we've clearly just proven that we don't need capital to execute our model, right? $2.7 billion is a lot of money. If you need a way to compensate people, and we have equity and dot we can do that. IC has really great programs that make it look really compelling for people. And do we need like the leadership of a board or outsiders? And like I get to hang out with Barry Diller and Joey whenever I want, or maybe not whenever I want, but whenever they're not sick of hearing from me. And that's really valuable. I mean, the IAC culture, which we really try to embrace, it's not for everybody. I love it. It's a lot of debate, a lot of standing up for what you believe in. Like in many cases, they just want to know that you know. And a lot of planning and a lot of time, like I think BD called it in Article One's creative conflict. Like that room is not the easiest room, but if you enjoy being in that room and you enjoy having ideas and defending them, and you don't mind when people are taking shots at your ideas, it's the best place to work. There's no other place in the world that would have let us mess around for two years with something, do as poorly as we did in the beginning. And that was pretty poorly. And then turn around and tell us like, come on guys, they'll do the next thing and take as much, not as much money as you want, but as much money as you reasonably need to do this. And then literally three or four years later, give us almost $3 billion to take this incredible shot. Like I see the best possible place to work if you're an entrepreneurial CEO. You mentioned Joey and Barry. I recently interviewed Joey late last year and I asked him about the things he learned from working with Barry Diller. And what he said was, think bigger. Why settle for a small idea or category? Why not go after a big one? Which I thought was pretty insightful. And that led him to take a stake in MGM that's been extraordinarily successful. Any insights that you've learned from Barry Diller that you want to share? I mean, I think it's what Joey said applies directly to this. Are we in this business? Are we good at it? Good at it enough that we're like, I guess, have the confidence that we're good at it, but like the self-awareness to know we have a long way to go and get better. And if we are, what are we doing if we're not going to take a shot here? What are we doing if we're not going to do this? And it's all of that. The other thing, there's some really specific things that I've learned here. And there's some really interesting things that I've learned about managing people and managing organizations from these guys, which is 100% of the time, you are better off finding your next leader internally than externally. Meaning, look around the room. If there's a job you need done and there's someone who is going to, who you think can have a shot at that job, even if they're going to be over their head, even if they're going to be in the deep water, chuck them in the pool. It's way better than hiring from the outside because that disempowers all those that work for you if you're bringing, and 
people from the outside fail more than people from the inside anyway, the organ rejection, cultural rejection. So our entire leadership team here has been, it's the same team that was here when we sucked. Most of the people running our businesses are people that we brought in doing something completely different than they're doing now. Like Tori Brangham, who runs our commerce business, who's an absolute star and responsible for whatever, a third to 40% of our revenue. She started out running a home vertical at about.com. And it's just so smart and so good. And we've done this so many times. That's the one thing. Now, are we insular? Is that weird because we don't go outside? I mean, we go outside when we have needs to go outside. But the effect that has on an organization, when everyone sees those around them or the people that, have, that can really advance and that your career is not capped and you can do anything. Going back to the conversation, everybody owns some equity and it creates an environment that is conducive for success and sets you up to do the thing, right? We never planned to buy Meredith. Were we ready to buy Meredith? Probably not. But had we learned how to think about something like buying Meredith 100%, listen, whatever we don't learn, we can ask or we can be told and we can, the process of buying, like the stories always tell great and very smooth in retrospect, but we're convincing some of the smartest people in the world of what we want to do. And they have their own opinions. And nobody has better pattern recognition than Barry Diller. He's seen virtually everything in media. And it might not be the exact same thing, but he knows nobody's better at building brands. I don't know. You just get to this place where the assembled learnings of the things you do and you put into practice and the culture, like the culture of this place, once you get it right, they'll invest in you and go do it. And it's exactly what Joey said. The Meredith deal is exactly... And I listened to the podcast with Joe's other. It's exactly what he said to you. Like, if you're going to do it, think bigger. Like, think bigger, 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 bigger. Like, let's go. And that's where we are here now. Hopefully not to our detriment. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. It's a great answer. And Neil, you've been really generous with your time today. And thanks for coming on to The World According to Boyer to discuss the evolution of Dot Dash, which is absolutely fascinating, and your recent acquisition of Meredith. As an IAC shareholder, I look forward to following your progress. So thanks for being on the show. I mean, thanks. Look, if anybody wants to talk to me for an hour, I'm happy to talk to them at any time. And thank you. It's been really fun. I really appreciate you having me on. I hope you enjoyed the show. To be sure you never miss another World According to Boyer episode, please follow us on Twitter at Boyer Value. Until next time. Mm-hmm.